We ready to roll? Is this thing on? This thing's on. Uh, my name's Jason Hirshhorn. I run a company called Redef that puts out newsletters. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. Um, <laughs> and this is my friend uh, and someone I admire, uh, CNN's Brian Stelter, uh, who covers the media business um, and increasingly more politics as politics and the media business have come through. Um, and uh, one thing I'll say, uh, you know, I, a friend mentioned to me, and it's, it's a sort of a sad uh, commentary, but over the last couple of days, as all of us, you know, sort of sit and watch the horror that's going on in the Ukraine, I remember when CNN launched, and I remembered its charter and, and what it was about. And I have to say, like, it, it really is back to the, the basics of, of what journalism is on TV, which is telling us what's going on in the ground. It's emotional. It's real. It's happening in real time. It's not trying to be sensationalistic, I don't think. And it's something that I think we'd like to see out of, you know, CNN more often. What, what's, your, what's your stance on how you guys are covering the, the, the war right now? Well, I think, number one, I, I think all of us who are not in Ukraine and Russia are proud and grateful to the, the staffers who are there. Um, the ratings rise, ratings fall, lots of haters, lots of, lots of fans have lots of things to say about CNN and cable news. But in a moment like this, viewers know where to go. And uh, I think I would say viewers know how to get home. You know, sometimes when there's really, really horrific news in the world or there's really great news, people know where to go. And I think the last week has reminded everyone of that in a really significant way. Um, that, that's, that's the main thing that comes to mind. And number two, you know, uh, let's, let's hope that all the reporters in the field can do it safely, including in Russia. And, and frankly, I think we're seeing so much from Ukraine right now, we're not seeing enough from Russia no. because of restrictions on the press there, because independent reporters are being kicked out of the country. We don't actually know what the average Russian citizen's thinking right now. That's an area we need more reporting, but it's very hard to get. So let me ask you this, though. But when you look at, I'm watching on air, and sometimes I've mentioned this to you that I'm, I'm looking at you at a proxy for me. What's <laughs> Brian going to ask for me? You know, how is this going to turn out the way that I want? Well, you can always text me. I, I do. I, I do text him when he's on air, and I, I wonder <laughs> why I don't hear back. But um, one, of the, one of the interesting things is, how do you look at this where you want... I want Americans to look at what's going on to understand what this means geopolitically, and yet that would really mean, unfortunately, that you have to show it through the prism of the U.S. Mm. It can't just be about Ukrainian suffering. It can't be about Putin. It can't be about you know, oil. It has to be like, how does this affect us, which is a legitimate question, but it also will change and, and, and in many ways, partisanized the, the topic. Is that something that's going on right well, now? I think sometimes you're watching the news for outcomes, and we're producing the news just to inform, right? And people that tune in because they want to see a certain outcome, or they're campaigning for a certain law, or they're campaigning for a certain thing, that's a different mechanism than what we are there to provide as reporters. However, it's true, many people, you know, they're watching for something more than that. And there's a tension there that's really real. I think what we need to be doing in coverage of the war right now is also helping people know how to find reliable, I shouldn't say sources, that's the name of my show, uh, find reliable information. Think about all the videos we're seeing, some of which are actually from Ukraine, some of which are seven or eight years old. There's so much out there that's misleading. Uh, it's almost like these situations are crash courses in media literacy, yeah. where we're saying to the viewers, here's how we've geolocated this video, here's how we've vetted and verified it. That's how I opened my show last Sunday, saying here's, here's this brand new piece of video, here's how we've vetted it. 
That's the layer that we can add value that the Facebooks of the world can't add that value. And there's a human element in that in that you're, you're online, you know, a lot of these people in the room are, are, are remarkably adept at social media and, you know, something I see online outrages me, but I don't, I'm not a fact checker. So I realized five hours later, like, I, I've shared a scene of Dunkirk, not, not like, you know, the Ukraine. And, uh, you know, but yet it's already done its damage. How are you dealing with that on a daily basis when, you know, I, I was telling you a story backstage. When I joined MTV, you know, years ago, I looked at them as, like, nuclear scientists. And being there for a week, I'm like, I don't have any idea how anything gets up on television in this country. <laughs> so... When you're, at, when you're at CNN, how do you, how do you, what is fact-checking in a world where there's less editors, less fact-checkers? You know, is there an editor-in-chief at CNN? Are you on, are you flying blind on air? Uh, that's interesting. Am I flying blind yeah, on air? Yeah. I do sometimes. I mean, a blind man that could see. I do sometimes you know, joke that when, when you're in breaking news mode on air, you feel like the loneliest person in the world because you are up there by yourself trying to make sure you get it right and don't screw it up. That, that is true. But you also know behind the scenes in Atlanta and D.C. and London and everywhere else, there are people that have your back that are trying to get the information. Uh, I, I, you know, so, so both are true at the same time. I, I think there's a, there's a quote on the wall right by where I sit in New York at CNN that says, news is just the first rough draft of history. And we need to remember that in this day and age where everything's minute by minute and you, you expect to know everything in the moment. Especially in a wartime mode, not only is the fog of war real, I think the fog is getting more dense because there's so much information. In this, in this weird upside down way, the more video and information we have, the more disinformation there is, the fog is actually denser than ever. Yeah. So you do need, in that case, reporters to be on the air telling you, here's what we hear and see in Kiev, and here's what we don't know. And telling you what you don't, telling us, telling you, the viewer, what we don't know has to become a bigger part of our jobs. To well, be transparent with the public. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that's good and bad. So I was just in Cleveland, uh, took the kids to NBA All-Star. Cool. I'm landing in O'Hare, nine minutes out. The pilot gets on and he says, I'm not skilled enough to make this landing. <laughs> and I got to tell you, like, it didn't make me feel good about the transparency. Okay, not so transparent. Um, okay. You know, I'm worried <laughs> that if I look back and I want to sound like an old man, I really do believe in institutions. I believed in, uh, in, in journalism, in the press, in the, the Walter Cronkite moments, all the things from the past where I knew people or I felt people were doing their job and they did it to the best of their ability in that moment. And yet now what we're seeing is rush to the air. And if a mistake is made, which is very human, I make mistakes every day in business and they're never considered um, death. They're considered... A, 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 a step on your way to success. Sure. But yet now... But in journalism, it, they're weaponized. They're weaponized. And it, they're, you're dealing with all sorts of... You know, you could talk about what are all sorts of disinformation that you've had to deal with. You've done... I mean, I, I remember you did a documentary about the New York Times, uh, page one, I believe. And then um, After Truth on HBO. And, you know, obviously you talk about this every week. But, like, what are the bombs that are being thrown at you on a daily basis... And then I have to say, even the Trump, you know, fake news stuff has creeped into my vernacular, not fake news, but in when I look at your homepage or when I see the continuum that all of us have seen, sort of the data chart of like, what's the far right, what's the far left, and there's got two news sources that are in the middle, like Reuters and AP, what, what is being thrown at you on a daily basis, internally and externally, 
so that I can still trust you tomorrow rather than your mm. name gets, I mean, there's well, not a day that they don't burn your image over at Fox News. Uh, that's true, but I, I couldn't care less at a time like this. And, you know, that says more about them than it does about me. Yep. When you say there's that spectrum and that continuum, it, th you're right. That, yeah, there's outlets on the left and there's some on the right or vice versa. But when there's a flood or a war or a disaster or something really awe-inspiring like a space launch, it doesn't matter who's left and right. When, when the news is actually happening, when it's actually important news, those, those labels go out the window. And that's where I think is the CNN strength really lies. That's the purpose that, that we have in the, in the world is for those big news events. Uh, but you asked about whether it was an editor-in-chief. So the day that my boss was forced out, Jeff Zucker, about a month ago, uh, this, of course, was immediate news. We wrote a story right away. But we also then copied in the top editor for CNN.com, the standards editor. We involved other people to make sure that we were being as balanced and as careful as we were if it was about Fox or NBC or, or some other network. So the answer is, yes, there are those layers. And those layers are there to protect us as reporters because the more sets of eyes, the better, especially in like a breaking news situation or in a story like that that's really close to home. Yeah, I mean, I, I was watching live knowing a lot of you guys when that broke. I had no idea about it. I don't think I'd even put on makeup yet, so that's embarrassing. Um, and I remember you, it, it looked like you were, very, you were being very emotional. So you're part of the crew that when Jeff took over, you saw the transition of what CNN became, more successful, more politically oriented. Um, and then I, on camera, Literally, as it's breaking, news is coming into you. I'm sure they're in your ear. You know, I'm sure you're reading stuff online. I'm sure you're taking texts from me. <laughs> and uh, there was a moment where you said, and there's a guy trying to blow up the place, and you were referring to your colleague, Chris Cuomo, um, which may or may not have been true days later or not. How do you, in that moment, because I think even guys like me forget that you're a human being. Like, me, to, me, <laughs> to me, you're like... You know, to me, the jobs, yeah. whether when I was a kid, a fireman or a, or a journalist or a doctor, it was like you're on the quarter, you know, you're on the dollar bill. The guy with the gray hair, you know, the, the lady with the gray hair, I trust them. Mm. Um, but you're dealing with someone who's now come at your boss or dealing with a subject where they're coming for your boss. You're happy with the way things are going there. You're dealing with a colleague, but you have to be unbiased. How do you work that out on air right in that moment? What was that moment like, if you even remember? <laughs> oh, I remember it all too clearly. Yeah. Uh, the, the answer is you go back to, to reporting. Uh, you just report the heck out of it. You treat it like you're outside the building, and you call everybody you can, and you try to figure out what the truth of the story is, and you just report the heck out of it. And I think that's what Zucker would have told us to do. But frankly, I think that's what people, journalists are just, you know, they know to do it. It's in our DNA. And uh, so what I said in that very first live shot, when nobody knew anything, all we knew is that he resigned. We didn't know at that point that he'd been forced out. Yeah. We didn't know there was going to be more to come. And also tell them the setup yeah. of the CNN newsroom. Like, it's not like he's somewhere else. Like, Jeff is four yeah, feet I mean, away he's, from, he's the, got a, from the He's stage. got a, you know, a corner office on the same floor. And you know, I noticed he hadn't been there for a few days. And people were starting to buzz about it. So, so the answer is, in that very first live shot, um, you know, I said, look, he was a rock for the newsroom. But... If he were talking right now, he would say this place is a much bigger than one person. And I think that's the bottom line about CNN or about the New York Times or the AP or ABC or any of these big, important global newsrooms. Leadership matters. They set a tone. That's important. But these places, they, they, are, they are institutions. As you said about defending institutions, they're institutions. They run on their own. 
And that's certainly been true for CNN in the past month. Yeah. He's someone, though, there's never been a time where I've had lunch with Jeff Zucker where we ended up at our lunch. There's always something <laughs> happening, and then you bring your plate from the restaurant in the Time Warner Center down to his office because something's going on. Mm. He's a guy very much like people in this room who lives it. Oh, Regardless yeah. of what you yeah. think of him, yeah. he lives his job. And, you know, in that moment, tell us what you, well, what, you, know, tell us what you up, think because yeah. we're all confused exactly what happened and did you want to hold him accountable given his value to the organization in the same way? Like, did it make you think about these rules and this immediate canceling? You know, tell, tell us exactly what happened as it's today, because I'm confused. You lost me after the 11th story. <laughs> uh, well, you should go and read the Journal and the Times and sure. CNN and, and get caught up. Yeah, the, I, like the, other people, have a life, I, but yes, I understand. <laughs> like, you know. I, I think that um, I, I said on the air a couple of weeks ago that we may never know the entire story here, or maybe it'll come out years later. I think it's, it's clear there were violations of policy. It's also clear a lot of people inside the company did not want to see him go. And uh, now I think it's clear... People are focused on the news and not focused on, on him or, or on Alison Gullist, but focused on the news. Uh, but I, you know, what you said about him being always on, it reminded me of the night that there was a bomb threat at CNN. This was weeks after actual mail bombs were sent to CNN. Weeks later, there was a phoned-in bomb threat. It was total BS, but we had to evacuate Don Lemon's control room and show. It was Jeff that went to the control room and said, we have to evacuate. It was Jeff outside on the street with the police. We ended up going live on my phone on Skype in order to get Don back on the air that night in like 11 p.m. on a freezing night in 58th Street in New York City. And then at midnight, when we got the all clear, it was Jeff who walked over to Don and I and said, go back to the news. Don't keep covering this. Move on. Don't make this about us. Get back to the news. And, you know, to me, that is when I say leadership sets a tone, that was a really important tone. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's what we're going to get from Chris Licht and David Zaslov as well. I was lucky. I was covering Chris Licht a decade ago when he launched his morning show, CBS This Morning. I was in the control room working on my book about morning TV. His values are CNN's values. And uh, I think that's what my colleagues are going to learn in the next few months. Got it. So how, how, did, how did I do there pivoting to the new boss? Would, well done. Would well you done. evaluate yeah. that as a... Well, he's watching right now, obviously. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, he's, I'm sure he's watching every minute. Um, he's got a dartboard. I'm sure he's got uh, better things to do. So let's talk about <laughs> misinformation because it's something you've been very vocal about. It's emotional for you. It's not anything we've ever um, really, really delved into in this country in a way because I think there is a a sense of that we know better, that we sort of invented the media game and that we, <laughs> we're the ones that wouldn't be fooled. Right. Um, right. Or, or that you want to believe what you're, you, you intend to want to believe in. And then there's two issues. What kind of a misinformation is hitting us on a daily basis and what frightens you? And then where is the viewer responsibility? You know, um, the person that has the job that, that, that works all right. day but still wants to be in there. Right. You know, I do, because of what I do for a living, go read both sides one of the sides is tough. It's like castor oil, you know, uh, or eating a shroom. It's not easy to swallow. Um, I, so I hear. But, but um, <laughs> tell us, tell us what's, what are all, you know, sort of the weapon types in misinformation. And well, you how, mentioned mistakes. Yeah. You mentioned mistakes as an example. And mistakes, genuine mistakes, get weaponized. But that's by bad faith actors. And I truly believe, maybe I'm too optimistic, most people are not in that bad faith, destroy everything, tear down the other side mode of warfare. Uh, they, are, they are people seeking 
to know what's actually true in the world. And, and maybe they, they do fall for fools and charlatans and grifters sometimes, but I think most people want to know what's actually true. That's the baseline for us. And thus, we need to be like almost like a verification, fact-checking layer for the world. So that if you see a video, and it doesn't have to be from Ukraine, it can be a video from close to home. It can be uh, a tweet or a TikTok from something in your neighborhood. We can be that verification layer for the world to tell you that is worth believing, that is not worth believing. Someone's trying to trick you. Because ultimately it comes down to people trying to trick you, right? Yeah. A lot of this is about your, people are trying to hurt and fool you. And when you view it that way, I think you get a vast majority of the public on the side of real news, reliable information, wanting to get to what is real. And as for those bad faith actors that are going to weaponize mistakes, to some extent that's always going to happen, and all you can do is educate people against it. But I believe, when it comes to good faith actors, when I uh, spell your name wrong in my newsletter, or I get a date wrong for something in my newsletter, and I get, you know, a dozen emails from readers the next day, I'll write and I'll say, hey, uh, screw that up yesterday, sorry about that, thank you to everyone who wrote in. And I truly believe when I write that, that gains trust, doesn't lose trust. We win people's trust that way. Yeah, got it. So, That's the hope. I don't know. So there's a correspondent on CNN that I love, Donnie. Um, I think he's from Ireland. Uh, Donnie O'Sullivan. Donnie yes. O'Sullivan. Yes. So he goes, and again, I'm not crapping Great on Great CNN story. He's a producer working in the newsroom, basically obscure, and then he's able to build a whole career for himself by covering disinformation. So even with you guys, I don't know whether or not you know that you're amplifying something that would make it look bigger to me than it is or whether it needs to be. But he does these pieces where he'll go to a far-right rally or right. a Trump rally. And again, right. I'm not looking to, to crap on them all the time. But, um, and he'll say, so why do you think X, Y, and Z? Right. Or what evidence do you have that would make you to believe this? And it's not even a layer thick it's just because they're there because they want to be part of a group. They're there because, in many ways, in a very innocent way, in a sort of fighting Sullivan's way from the, from the old school, they want to believe their president. Right. And if, if Donald Trump says something, they want to believe it, but yet it's almost comical. It's, it's, you could not distinguish some of his pieces from a Colbert report or, or a Jon Stewart on the, on the, you know, on the ground. How do I then believe that most people want the truth? Well, uh, most people want to belong. I, I agree with that. And alienation in this country is something that the press needs to continue to try to explore by, by interviewing people. But I think you do that through the interviews. Um, but it's by interviewing a wide array, not just the people that go to Trump rallies, although I think that's very important. I remember going to a rally in 2018 and looking at the difference between the people in the front row and the people in the back row. People in the front row, they were there to sing his songs. You know, they were true believers. People in the back row were not. And we need to understand that wide array of support and how some of it's very intense and others not so much. And I think Donny gets to some of that in his stories. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, if, you know, we could wave a magic wand, we need to have more of those voices. We need to have more citizen voices on the air and maybe a, fewer, a couple fewer panels, a couple fewer pundits. When I watch his pieces what it's done to me is it's changed me from someone who's saying those people are fucking morons versus they have a belief system that is actually so trusting sure. that they can be led astray to something that may look obvious to me. Well, that's what I felt writing my book hoax about Fox and Trump. 
that you have to, when you watch it the way that a Fox fan watches that network, you come away with a belief system and a set of values, and you truly are in it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, not, a, it's not an act anymore. Yeah. So when I, sometimes when I watch you guys and there is a mistake or there is an eye roll, or something happens in their private lives. Throw the eye roll. Oh, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you in a second. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm like watching. It's like watching my stepson go to the plate at T baseball. Like I'm so nervous he's gonna fuck up, and then if he fucks up, <laughs> we're gonna lose. I just can't tell him that. You know, this isn't Rudy. So you know, y- you guys are you you guys are on air, um, and when I was young and watching news in 60 Minutes with my grandparents, yeah. there was a difference. You knew who a pundit was, and you knew who a journalist was. So when I see someone in prime time where most people are watching, um, you know, some of your highest rated shows, and there's an eye roll from a journalist, I just come from a, I come from a, a casting place mm. where like, you got to remain even and, and then I think, oh, my God, if I'm even trying to convert someone from the overside, they just saw Anderson Cooper eye roll, we just fucking lost them. Hmm. Like, you know, so is, is, is it a myth that there can be no emotion and everything is unbiased in the way that you report and present news? I think we've got to make you an anchor at CNN. Can't afford me. I know. <laughs> but, yeah. I think we've got to have you sit in the seat. Yeah. And give it a try. Yeah. Jeff did, and my first news hour was six hours. <laughs> so, you know. Um, you blew through every commercial break? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Screw those commercials. <laughs> you know, that worries me because opinion isn't fact. You can't speculate, but it's not fact. And, when you, when, and specifically, now that I'm around young children who watch the news, I hear yeah. the parroting. Hmm, interesting. You know, I, I literally heard the 10-year-old talk about why we're in, you know, why, what's going on in the Ukraine and there, he didn't do any fact-checking. You know, <laughs> he's just got enough for a recess. So you're saying I've got to keep my four- and two-year-olds away from CNN? No, well, well it, it, it brings a bigger point, which is news has taken on a different um, display mechanism. There are things like Too Long Didn't Read. You go to Snapchat. One of the things that worries me terribly, if you look at news over time, specifically TV news, it is the original algorithm. It is the original put crime first, sports last, manipulate the viewer, make them afraid, maybe not even intently, but you start to see the, 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 the numbers. Kids are on social media platforms. They only read the headline. They may not click through. They may not want to read the entire story. Mm. And, and you guys are also using that distribution to get audience. Right. Um, how are we going to get a young folk to reset? I always worry about with history that once you go beyond... You pass the Rubicon, you go beyond the limits yeah. that you can never come back. You know, it, it, it worries me, meaning like there's no going back to basics. Hmm. How are we going to get kids for the future? Well, when I look at the State of Union last night... And, and, take, yeah. and take reader or viewer responsibility. Well, I, so I'm teaching a class at NYU this semester, and we talked about this on Tuesday. We're, we're going through readings, and, it, and it talking about how if you're a member of the media, and we all are members of the media now, that means you have a higher responsibility. If you are creating as well as consuming content, then you have a responsibility as a creator, and those are values that have to be instilled. But I, I looked at the State of the Union last night, and number one, Biden going after social media is interesting. Never happened by a president before. We'll see if anything comes of it. But he's warning about social media hurting children. Uh, when I look at the ratings of the State of the Union, 
higher than last year's speech by Biden. People still tuned in, even in traditional form, into linear TV. To me, the future of media is all of the above. So you're talking about children and kids and teens. The future of media is going to include all of these outlets and sources. And by all means, join the fight, right? I mean, the way that you have with Redef, let's get in it and let's create new, uh, new options for people. Uh, and also, that's a way to hold the mainline institutions, the CNNs of the world, accountable. I think that's also a positive. Do you ever see a day where you would want to be involved in, in the distribution of news, the presentation of news, and not in the reporting of it? I mean, your background is being a journalist and a pundit and a fan of the media ecosystem. And, you know, we all are talking about Putin and judo and using your weight, you know, against an opponent that is bigger than you. You know, one of the holes in the American system, and it's also the greatest gift, is this open media platform of which has been used against us now. And the young are the most vulnerable. How would you, as a multi-platform journalist and pundit, how would you look to change that? Well, my dream show would be set in a control room. And I would be able to have a computer in front of me pulling up slides to show the viewers in real time and, and strip some of the walls that exist uh, in terms of producing live TV. But those walls also do exist for a reason. And I think the last week has reminded us about core values in journalism that are going to be true for my kids and your kids and their kids. Basic reporting and fact-checking, going to the actual scene instead of just watching it online, those core values are what's not going to change. Yep. Maybe that's why I'm such a bull about the future of journalism. Those core values are here no matter what. Well, like Jeff, I said, you know, I know you since you're about 20 years old. <laughs> you live it. You put out a newsletter every day, which makes me feel very unproductive. You put out podcasts. You've got reliable sources, which looks at the media ecosystem and is critical, but also as a fan and, and looks at politics. And, you know, I look at you as a proxy for me, and that's why I text you what to do when you're on air sometimes. <laughs> but I know that you come at it from a, a pure heart and wanting truth, not for any agenda. And I thank you for coming out today, uh, Brian Stelter. From now I've got to go write the newsletter. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. Cool. Thank you.